The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. David asked, Is there anyone still left at the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of Saul's household named Ziba. They summoned him to appear before David, and the king said to him, Are you Ziba? At your service, he replied. The king asked, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. Where is he? The king asked. Ziba answered, He is at the house of Machir, son of Amiel and Lodabar. So King David had him brought from Lodabar, from the house of Machir, son of Amiel. When Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, Your servant will do whatever my lord the king commands his servant to do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and all the members of Ziba's household were servants of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet. In my sermon last week, I made a passing comment. It wasn't even in my notes, but I just said, you know, at some point uh, in my pastorate at RCBC, I would love to preach to you this story in 2 Samuel chapter 9 because it uh, really resonates with what we're looking at this morning in Mark chapter 7. And little did I know that the Lord would answer that prayer, that hope, uh, in about seven days. So here we are. Uh, welcome to the Old Testament. It's the first Old Testament sermon here at RCBC. Please turn with me to that aforementioned passage, 2 Samuel chapter 9. 2 Samuel chapter 9, if you need to use the table of contents to find 2 Samuel, uh, no shame there, just find your way to 2 Samuel chapter 9. As you're flipping there, I'll say a few words by way of context. Uh, The book of 1 Samuel ends with the death of Israel's first king, Saul, marking an end to his disastrous rule. And and then in the early chapters of 2 Samuel, David has been appointed to replace Saul as king. And the Ark of the Covenant has been brought back to Jerusalem, the newly established city of God's chosen people. Saul's son... Jonathan has also been killed, and David, the shepherd boy that God had promised to crown, is now finally on the throne. Now, I'm going to unpack 
just for a minute or two, what I just said, because we haven't been in the Old Testament. We haven't been tracking the storyline of Israel the same way that we've been kind of tracking passage by passage the storyline through Mark. You've got to understand that here in 2 Samuel 9, this is a particularly exciting moment because just two chapters earlier in 2 Samuel 7, God had made a stunning promise to David, a, a covenant pledging to him that he would build a royal dynasty that would never end. God essentially said to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, someone from your line, a future descendant of yours, is going to sit on the throne forever. Of course, these promises to David didn't arise out of nowhere. They themselves were the continuation of God's ancient covenant promises going all the way back to Abraham. His one plan to bring glory to himself through the salvation of sinners from every nation was always, ever since Genesis chapter 12, which we actually looked at last Sunday, it was always going to center on one royal redeemer, one who would rule righteously under God himself. You don't need to turn here, but just, just listen to some of these promises being previewed in Genesis chapter 17. God says to, to Abraham, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. These royal promises continue with Israel. Genesis 49, the scepter, that is the, the king's ruling rod, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. You can hear there that this is picking up and developing that promise in Genesis 12, 3, that through Abraham, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So that's 2 Samuel 7. And then in 2 Samuel 8, which is the chapter immediately before the one we're looking at this morning, we see a catalog of David's military victories and officials. The, the message is clear. David has triumphed. The promises have come true. His power has been consolidated, his empire established, and God's promised rest, rest for the land and rest for the people is at last being enjoyed. The ancient promises are being fulfilled, partially, which brings us to chapter 9. 2 Samuel 9, I want to think with you about three aspects of this story. The promise, the kindness, and the glimpse. First, the promise. Second, the kindness. And third, the glimpse. First, the promise. Verse 1, David asked, is there anyone still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? David's remembering here an oath that he had made years earlier to King Saul's son, Jonathan, when Saul was trying to kill David to prevent him from becoming the next king. 
I want to look at this with you briefly. Keep your finger in 2 Samuel 9 and flip backward to 1 Samuel, the, the book immediately prior to 1 Samuel chapter 20. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 20, starting in verse 14. This is Jonathan speaking to David. King Saul's son, Jonathan, speaking to David. Show me unfailing kindness like the Lord's kindness as long as I live so that I may not be killed and do not ever cut off your kindness from my family. Not even when the Lord has cut off every one of David's, that is your enemies from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David. So when David in 2 Samuel 9 verse 1 asks are there any surviving descendants of Saul? He's explicitly recalling this, this covenant with Saul's son, Jonathan. But think about this. After everything David has suffered at the hands of Saul, after all the trouble that Saul and his people had put David through, wouldn't this be a really convenient promise to forget? I mean, after all, this promise was made probably in private years before, and maybe the only person who knew about it, Jonathan, is dead. And here David is, finally in Jerusalem. Enemies subdued, throne secured. The biggest threat to his reign had been those associated with his predecessor, Saul. So when David asks, hey, is there anyone left from Saul's line? Oh, there is? Bring him to me so that I may show him kindness. This would have sounded like a death sentence. Those gathered around David would have assumed, even hoped, that his real intent it was to get rid of, to eliminate this last potential rival to his throne. The last remaining person in his enemy's line. This sense of kingdom vulnerability is probably why Saul's old servant Ziba, verse 3, quickly draws attention to Mephibosheth's handicap. So David asks, is there anyone from the house of Saul? And Ziba says, there's still a son of Jonathan. Okay, so this is, would be Saul's grandson. There's still a son of Jonathan. He is lame in both feet. 2 Samuel 4 describes how this happened when Mephibosheth was five years old and his caretaker heard the news of Saul and Jonathan being killed in battle. She, start, she picked him up and started to run and she dropped him and he became paralyzed from that day forward. So when Ziba says this, there's still a son of Jonathan. He, he's lame in both his feet. He's essentially saying to David, don't worry, your majesty. The only guy left from the enemy line can't do anything to you. His legs don't even work. He's no threat to you. Oh, and he's no benefit either. He can't fight 
and he can't plow. He's utterly worthless, which is maybe why Ziba doesn't even bother to mention Mephibosheth's name. Well, where is he? David asks. Verse 4. He's at the house of Makir, son of Amiel in Lodabar. Now, I'm well aware those words mean nothing to you. But here's what's significant. That's really far away. Mephibosheth has gotten as far away from this new king as he can, all the way up north on the other side of the Jordan River in a little place called Lodabar, which literally means no pasture. He's distant. He's trying to be forgotten. His very name, Mephibosheth, means a shameful thing. Mephibosheth, a shameful thing. He's a person of shame living out his days up in a place of shame. And his crippledness is this kind of enacted parable of the condition, the shameful condition of the house of Saul. And because as part of Saul's family, he's an enemy of this new king, Mephibosheth is not just shameful, he is condemned. It would have been so easy, wouldn't it, for for David to avenge himself, to enact justice by just leaving Saul's grandson way up there in the middle of nowhere to die, or bringing him to Jerusalem to execute the justice himself. But David was bound by something that shows up three times in this story. The word hesed, the Hebrew word hesed. Throughout the Hebrew scriptures, it's translated as kindness or unfailing kindness or steadfast love. It means committed, covenant-based love. Not convenience-based love, covenant-based love. And in this story, David, we see, is reflecting the character of God who makes promises and keeps promises on the basis of hesed, covenant love. I wonder, is, is your life characterized by this kind of God-reflecting love, this kind of loyal immovable commitment do you keep your word even when it's inconvenient even when it no longer feels necessary or do you tend to approach people and enter relationships as a consumer with the expectation of commitment you're willing to commit so long as the relationship is going to clearly benefit you. You're happy to commit. You're happy to be a committer. You're happy to even be a contributor so long as you're enjoying yourself as a consumer. If you're a Christian but not yet in covenant with any local church, I I just want to really encourage you here that commitment to Jesus Christ according to the Bible, commitment to Jesus shows up in commitment to his people. If you profess the name of Jesus, then you need to be formally committed to a local body that bears his name. This is not a commercial for RCBC. 
In fact, I would go so far as to say I would rather you stop attending here if you're not going to join this church and go to a church, a healthy gospel preaching church that you can join and commit yourself to. That's going to be the best thing for you spiritually to create this, this cement in your relationships, people that you're actually accountable to and can be responsible for you spiritually. I can't really uh, illustrate this because of my, my cast, my splint, but I have a wedding ring on, uh, and if my finger weren't so swollen, you'd be able to pull the wed- wedding ring off, and I'd be able to show you that my wet- wedding ring is a regular attender of my body. My, wet, my wedding ring is, is a faithful attender of my body, but it's not part of my body. If, if I were to lose my wedding ring, we would say it disappeared. But if I were to lose my finger, there's a word in English we would use for that. It was dismembered. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, the Apostle Paul describes the local church as one body with many members. Church membership is not something that a bunch of pastors made up to establish some job security. It's something that the inspired Apostle Paul told us about. Using that very language in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which if I had time, I could prove to you is is mainly talking about local church membership, not universal church membership. But here's the thing, if you're settling for just being a faithful church attender, then that means that you're settling for just being a piece of jewelry on the body of Christ. You're falling far short of his vision for you. You are not just a piece of jewelry, an accessory on his body. You're meant to be a vital, connected, living body part. If you are a church member here, This is a good reminder as we think about hesed, covenant love, that that you have voluntarily voluntarily locked yourself into a mutual covenant relationship with every other member here. That's why we have a church covenant, which I just quoted from in, in the pastoral prayer. That whole church covenant is counterintuitive and countercultural because it's so different than the way the world understands love. The way the world understands love is basically a a contract of convenience. I'll commit to you so long as there's a clear ROI for me, so long as it clearly is going to benefit me. And the moment it becomes inconvenient or the moment that I feel like I'm not getting out more than I'm putting in, then I'm going to leave and go elsewhere. We see this play out not only in the devastation of no-fault divorce, but also even in the way that we spiritually can treat church. It's so easy in the name of Jesus to actually treat church as a consumer. We can even do this with ministry opportunities. We can so focus on what my gifts are and how I need to serve the church that actually church service becomes just another avenue for self-actualization and self-expression. If I can't serve the Lord in this lane, the one that I'm convinced from maybe an online spiritual survey is the way that he wants me to serve his church, then I'm not super interested. I'm good at this. I'm not good at childcare. I'm not, I'm not good at being with two and three-year-olds. I don't, I don't find much meaning and value and satisfaction in that. Oh, friends, let's be careful 
that we don't use the name of the Lord and the church of the Lord and the ministry of the Lord as just another platform for convenient self-expression. Let's be a church that is eager to commit, slow to just consume, whose hearts are tender and whose promises to one another are like cement, even when it comes at a cost. The promise. Number two, the kindness. In verse five, Mephibosheth is officially summoned. So King David had him brought. Mephibosheth, wake up. Your grandfather's arch enemy wants to see you. As he makes the journey south to Jerusalem, that long journey south, the contrast between the rise of David's house and the fall of Saul's house is clear. Just three chapters earlier in 2 Samuel 6, David had entered Jerusalem. David had entered the capital city, whirling and dancing before the Lord. Here, the surviving remnant of Saul enters the city limping, hobbling, crippled in both his legs. Verse 6, when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. I mean, why mention his grandfather's name again? We already know he is the grandson of Saul. Well, it's just one more reminder, lest we miss it, that this is a condemned family, and therefore this guy hobbling his way all the way down to Jerusalem is a condemned man. Well, Mephibosheth arrives, and despite his handicap, he manages to to fall on his face, helpless, silent. All he can do is lay there and hope for mercy. And so he waits, and he waits, and he waits for the sound of a sword leaving its sheath. But instead he hears, Mephibosheth, Mephibosheth, David exclaims. Verse 7, don't be afraid, don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will always eat at my table. David saying, Mephibosheth, shameful thing, look at me. You're going to stay. You're, you're not just for a photo op with the king. You're going to stay. You're going to live here, and I want to eat every meal of the rest of my life with you. Can you imagine? Verse 8, Mephibosheth bowed down and said, What is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? This is the verse we looked at last week. But by calling himself a dog, Mephibosheth is not likening himself to man's best friend. In the ancient world, dogs were unclean, unwelcome creatures. In light of last week's passage about the Syrophoenician woman and the dogs eating the crumbs, and the, the Bible's description of Gentiles as covenant outsiders, Mephibosheth may here be disassociating himself from Israel, acknowledging that 
through his alliance with the house of Saul, David's enemy, that he is functionally a Gentile. I wonder when, when you hear this, what is your servant that you should notice? A dead dog like me, if you just think, oh man, this guy, he could really use a trip to the self-help section of the bookstore. I mean, one non-evangelical commentator I read had this to say, quote, Mephibosheth's reference to himself as a dead dog is unnecessarily disparaging and reflects what would now be regarded as a morbid self-image. Unnecessarily disparaging. What do you think? I mean, last week I mentioned that that some denominations are changing the words to amazing grace because of the word wretch. But, oh, friend, not only did John Newton get it right, but so did Mephibosheth. He knows that in the presence of the rightful king, he stands as an outsider, as an enemy. He is as good as dead. What did Jesus tell the the lukewarm church in Laodicea, Revelation 3. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and don't need a thing. But you don't realize that actually you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. This is why our scripture reading earlier was from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 reminding us of our lowly estate when we were called. God didn't handpick the impressive. God handpicked the unexpected. He loves to take the unworthy, the unexpected, no names from places of nothing in order to magnify his grace. Well, David doesn't just spare Mephibosheth's life. That would have been mercy enough. He also unlocks the floodgates of mercy. Verse 9, Then the king summoned Ziba, Saul's steward, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and your servants are to farm the land for him and bring in the crops so that your master's grandson may be provided for. And Mephibosheth, grandson of your master, will always eat at my table. You know, ancient kings would would fill their throne rooms with the strong and the mighty to flaunt their power and prestige. In David's newly established throne room, he has a cripple hobbling around. Not because David's weak. It would have been a sign of weakness to onlooking eyes, but David has this cripple hobbling around, not because he's weak, but because he's righteous, because he's godly. This is a good reminder for us as a church. What kind of people do we want to be associated with our church? What kind of people do we want to be interested in our church? Do we want to join our church? Those who obviously bring a lot to the table, terms of means and experience, those who outwardly look impressive? Or do we have the heart of David and ultimately the heart of God? 
Are we willing to invest in people? See, it's easy, it's easy to invest in people who are unimpressive, who don't bring a lot to the table as an act of charity. But again, that can just become another means of feeling better about ourselves. David could have just done the photo op. That would have been above and beyond what he was obliged to do. But David wasn't just interested in feeling better about himself and showing a little charity to Mephibosheth. David wanted not just to invest in him as a project, he wanted to spend the rest of his life with this guy. Some of us, if we're honest, we are looking for a church without any Mephibosheths. As the lead pastor here, I want to be very clear, this is not that place. I've said this before, it's worth reiterating in light of a story like this. Oh, I want RCBC to be a, a, a church, a haven for doubters, questioners, strugglers, if that's you, if, if you're visiting perhaps this morning, maybe even if you're a member of the church and, and you just kind of feel like this perpetual outsider, a shameful thing, like you don't belong, I want you to hear from me and, and from the authority of God's word that we welcome you because the Lord does. Oh, may the Lord make us a church that gladly welcomes and cares for the poor and needy and and does so because he has treated us that way, a church of Mephibosheths for Mephibosheths. Well, after David here works out kind of the, the details of Mephibosheth's estate, the story concludes, verse 13, and Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. He was lame in both feet, as if we've forgotten that. But I, I love that ending. The, the narrator just wants to remind us one last, last time, lest we forget, he's paralyzed. He's not the kind of person that, that you would expect, that you should expect to be dining with David. But there he is, handpicked by the king. The kindness. The kindness. The promise, the kindness, and number three, the glimpse. The glimpse. Look again at verse three. King David asks, Is there no one still alive from the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Notice he doesn't say, is there, Hey, is there anyone still alive from Saul's house to whom I can show my kindness? No, he, he's looking for an opportunity, for an excuse to reflect something about the kindness and the character and the heart of God. We're supposed to see, in other words, we're supposed to see and learn and absorb and internalize something about not just David. This isn't a moral lesson about David. This is something that we're meant to learn about God in 2 Samuel 9. And oh, how much there is to learn and to see. When you and I had no resources to remedy our dreadful condition, what did the king do? He sent for us and he brought us to himself. I have come, Jesus said, to seek and to save the lost. 
God didn't wait for us to initiate our salvation. If he had waited for you to initiate his salvation, he would have been waiting forever. And he didn't just send out a bunch of to whom it may concern letters. Or, you know, to use a more modern way of putting it, he didn't mass email humanity. Just kind of hoping that some of us would RSVP. No, he showed up to the prison. He came and he knocked on the cell and he didn't just knock on the the cell of your heart. He opened it. Acts 16, 14, the Lord opened Lydia's heart. He knocked, he opened, he stepped in and he grabbed you. Charles Spurgeon once said, I believe in the doctrine of election because I'm quite sure that if God had not chosen me, I should have never chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterward. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reason in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. God initiated. Before the beginning, God initiated his relationship with you. And then he summoned you, he brought you, and as we see in this story, he named you. Because even though you might in the eyes of the world or even in your own eyes be a shameful thing, in his you are precious. Mephibosheth says to David in this story, what is your servant? He's just, he's speechless. He's gobsmacked. What, what, if, what are you doing here? What, what is your servant? But the king will have none of it. Mephibosheth, I, I don't intend to make you a servant. I intend to make you a son. You're with me now. This reminds me, perhaps you, of Luke 15, the story of the prodigal sons, plural. But with the younger son, it's father. He comes back. What does he say? Father, I am not worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And his dad, I love this, his dad doesn't even respond to that. Have you ever noticed that? His dad ignores that. Hey, will you just take me in as a servant? His dad doesn't acknowledge it. He just says, quick, bring the best robe and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Or as the Apostle Paul put it in Galatians, so you are no longer a slave but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. And how is all this possible, friends, for us? Well, verse 7. There's something profound in verse 7. Don't be afraid, Mephibosheth, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I'm going to show you kindness, and here's why. For the sake of your father, Jonathan. David's favor didn't come to Mephibosheth because of anything Mephibosheth was in himself, but because of someone Mephibosheth was united to. Sound familiar? And if you're united to Christ by faith, God says to you, don't fear, don't be afraid, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your Savior, Jesus. 
Friends, the king of heaven loves to take persons of zero status and make them royalty to bless them on the basis of something that occurred, to bless them on the basis of something that someone else did before they were even born. This covenant with Mephibosheth between David and Jonathan predated his life and it's saving his life. What do you think was the greatest gift Mephibosheth received in all of this? I mean, dining at the king's table came with a lot of benefits. Dining with the king meant you, you also had access to his power, his prosperity, his protection, his favor, his, his provision. But the greatest gift, of course, wasn't any of that. The greatest gift was David. Getting to be with the king night after night, experience the king. I mean, think about it. I said earlier, David didn't just bring him in for a one-time photo op. But you know what David also could have done? David could have gone above and beyond that and said, okay, Mephibosheth, I'm actually not going to send you back to where you came from. I'm going to let you stay with me. I'm going to let you live with me. I've actually set up a whole wing of my palace and I'm going to have meals sent to you for the rest of your life. No. He brings him in because he wants to be with him. Oh, friend, what, ask, ask yourself this question. What would have been better if God had healed Mephibosheth's legs but left him way up in Lodabar or if he'd left him lame and brought him to Jerusalem? What's better, being healthy without the king or crippled with him? Even without healed legs, Oh, the Lord wants us to see this this morning, even without healed legs. And some of you are praying for things that the Lord has said no to or not yet to. There's not the healing you've asked for. Even without healed legs, Mephibosheth had everything he needed because he had the king. This past summer marked 55 years since a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata fractured her spinal column in a diving accident, leaving her at the age of 17 paralyzed from the neck down. And her perspective on what happened that day, 55 years ago, she's been a quadriplegic in a wheelchair. Her perspective as she looks back on that fateful day and what God has been up to since, it's a perspective that has inspired millions. Here's what she says. Quote, God sometimes permits what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. Can any of you relate to that? God sometimes permits what he hates in order to accomplish what he loves. He has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer the embrace. And then I love, she says, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. Every month, we come together as a church to the king's table. And Jesus loves 
to see Mephibosheth's there, ex-enemies feasting on his body and blood by faith. And you know the day is coming when the Lord's table will be transformed from a place of symbol to a place of reality. Your lead pastor, it'll be a much better meal because your lead pastor will not be presiding over it. The king will. And the bread and the cup will have yielded and given way to him. At the very end of our Bibles, we read these words in Revelation 19. Then the angel said to me, this is the Apostle John, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. We don't deserve a place, a seat at the Lord's table now, and we won't deserve one at the ultimate table then. But we have all, by grace, been summoned from a far off place. Though we were members, not of the house of Saul, but actually of a far worse house, members of the dynasty of Adam, the fallen king, we have been transferred to another house, to another king, to the true Adam and better David. Up until this point in First and Second Samuel, the driving question has been, what kind of a person wins God's favor? What kind of a king do God's people need? And there has been a resounding answer. David, 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 David. And when David is at his best, like he is here in chapter nine, he does embody the kind of king that we need and that God's people were meant to have. But in just two chapters, he will be taking another man's wife, having her husband killed, See, David was a good king most of the time, but he was far from the ultimate king. A thousand years later, that one arrived. And if you have turned from your own wretchedness, your own moral bankruptcy, and flung yourself on the floor before King Jesus in faith, then the Bible says he has lifted you up, looked you in the eyes, called you by name, dressed you in robes of righteousness, and said, welcome to my home, to my palace. Make yourself at home because you are home. You're with me. And sitting at that royal table, Day after day, year after year, you know what wouldn't have been visible to David and to all those seated around? Mephibosheth's legs. I mean, they were still there. They were still useless. But they were not what the king was fixated on. He would have been fixated. I'll say this in conclusion. He would have been fixated on Mephibosheth's face because in the contours of Mephibosheth's face he would have seen a resemblance he would have seen a reminder he would have seen the features of someone else someone he loved dearly Mephibosheth's dad Jonathan and brothers and sisters in ourselves we are dead dogs and shameful things but the king of the universe isn't fixated on our sin, on our weakness. He's gazing at something else. When he looks at you, he sees the resemblance of someone else. When he looks at you, he sees the features of the one, spiritually the features of the one in whom he is well pleased. And when he sees Jesus in you, 
He does not want to look away. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this brilliant glimpse of the gospel in the Old Testament. For the way that this little story points beyond itself to the ultimate David, to the true Son of God who has come to earth, who has summoned us not to destroy but to save and to give us a seat at your table forever. We pray that we would be a church that revels in your goodness. And may we do so even now as we lift our voices to you in song. It's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen.